Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. And this morning we will be looking at chapter 7, the second half of that chapter, verses 25 through 52. John chapter 7, verses 25 through 52. Please give your attention to God's holy and errant word. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who had believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. If you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you know that the events described here at the end of chapter 7 take place in the context of 
the favorite, the greatest of the three yearly religious feasts that the, that the Jews celebrated, the Feast of Tabernacles. It took place in the fall every year, in the month that we would call October. And it was, we called it last week, it was kind of like Thanksgiving on steroids. It was a week-long, seven days of God's people gathering together to fellowship with one another, to worship. They built little booths made out of, out of branches and leaves. And they lived in these little tent-like booths all week long, like a great camp meeting. And they spent those seven days together in Jerusalem celebrating God's faithfulness in providing for all their needs. It was a harvest celebration. Being in the fall, it was a harvest celebration, celebrating God's provision in the present. But it also was a celebration of God's provision historically. Not only is God providing right now today because we can see it in the harvest, but God has always provided faithfully for his people. And particularly it looked back to his provision during those difficult years when a generation was in of the people of Israel were living in the wilderness, traveling from slavery and bondage in Egypt to the freedom and prosperity of the promised land how he provided for their needs, how their sandals didn't wear out, how he provided the manna, this magical bread from heaven, how he provided this quail that came out of nowhere, how he provided water from the rock. Basically, this whole seven-day celebration was just full of shouting and joy to God, saying, the Lord is faithful and the Lord provides for his people, both now and in the past and forever. That's what the Feast of Tabernacles was about. But in order to really understand what chapter 7 is about, you have to understand the context of the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Every day during those seven days at dawn, one of the assigned priests would go to the pool of Siloam. And there at that pool, he would draw out a golden pitcher full of water. And then that priest would take that pitcher full of water and he would lead a very solemn procession through the city from the pool of Siloam to the to the temple. And in that procession, you had priests and you had the people lining the streets and you had in the procession, you had the priests and they were all chanting together the words of Psalm 118, particularly verse 25, which says, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm that looks forward to the days of the Messiah and looks to that salvation, that provision of God. They would chant this together, and when they arrived at the temple, they would be greeted by the crowds, and the people would be shouting for joy, and they'd be waving palm branches, and the priests, there would be a group of priests who would meet them there at the temple, and they would blare with loud trumpets, as this procession entered the temple courts. And then that priest would take that golden jar of water, he would take it to the temple of the burnt, or to the altar of the burnt offering, and he would pour the water on the altar. And this is what happened every morning at dawn through the Feast of Tabernacles, but on the seventh day they repeated that ritual seven times. By Looking to the water, it's water 
was a symbol of God's provision for the needs of God's people. But by pouring it on the altar, they're making a connection between God's provision for his people and the atonement, the shedding of blood of a sacrifice, of a substitute that was necessary in order for us to have any hope of God's provision. Now, knowing that that ritual was repeated seven times on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, let me read to you again what Jesus stood up in the, he stood up in the courts of the temple, and this is what he shouted to the people on that last day, the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. In that context, do you see the power of what he's saying? I am the means of atonement. I am the means of God's provision for you. I stand here offering to you, inviting you to come to me in faith to have your needs met. It's interesting that over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul talks about the Exodus, this great event of history that the Feast of Tabernacles celebrated. And he speaks of it as though the events were like a metaphor. And this is what he says, beginning of chapter chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Paul got what Christ was saying in the courts of the the temple. That rock that provided the miraculous water to meet the needs of the people in the wilderness was Christ. And Christ stands in the courts of the temple here in chapter 7 and says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. I don't think that the concept of thirst hits us in this day and age like it did the Jews in the first century standing there in that temple court. Because quite honestly, we don't really experience real thirst very often. I mean, if you get even slightly thirsty, you know that all you have to do is probably walk about 20 or 30 feet at most to the nearest faucet or the nearest water fountain or the nearest refrigerator and get yourself something to drink to take care of that thirst. We don't really experience real thirst like many people, even today, but especially in history, have had to go through. In that dry, arid climate of Israel, there was very little water. They didn't live close to large bodies of water. Water was a very precious commodity. And they knew in many aspects of their lives what real thirst felt like. And we so rarely experience it. A couple weeks ago, we were having that big heat wave that went on for days and days. We had 90 degree plus, you know, temperatures and we had high humidity. And and at the same time, we're getting a lot of rain. And I was getting really frustrated because every time I got home and I wanted to mow the lawn, it was raining and I couldn't mow the lawn. This went on for a couple weeks, actually. And by the time I got a day when it wasn't raining and the lawn was about up to my knees, and I needed to get out there and mow it, it was absolutely, and now in hindsight I can clearly say it was the hottest day of that heat wave. 
And so I came home at the, in the late afternoon when it was at the hottest point of the day, and I spent hours and hours catching up on mowing the lawn and doing yard work. And by the time dark came, I walked in from all that yard work, and I was absolutely drenched with sweat. I think every liquid in my body was almost entirely gone. And I, I experienced thirst. Like, I haven't experienced it in a long time. I mean, you know that kind of thirst where it hurts. It's intense. It's painful. And there is no experience like walking to the refrigerator at a moment like that and pulling out a cold drink, pouring it in a glass, putting some ice in it, and then drinking it down. That, that is a, a feeling of relief and satisfaction like you rarely experience in any other physical situation. That's the kind of thirst that Jesus is causing, he wants us to think about. The kind of thirst that we have in life. In our culture, our thirsts and our hungers for physical and material things very rarely go unmet. We live in a very prosperous and comfortable time. Those needs, that thirst, is usually very quickly satisfied when it arises to even a small degree. But the plain truth is that we're not just animals. Animals can be satisfied with just having your basic physical needs met, having your thirst assuaged, having your hunger satisfied, having shelter over your head. But we're not just animals. We have deeper needs. We have spiritual needs because we're made in the image of God. We have thirsts for significance in life. We have thirst for success. We have thirst for power and control. We have thirst for worship. That in the mass of our culture, largely day in and day out, go unmet. People are thirsty, but they don't understand that thirst. And they're looking for all the wrong things to satisfy it. Particularly often looking for material and, and physical things in order to satisfy those deeper emotional and spiritual needs. And Jesus speaks to those needs. And he says to our culture, just as he did to his own, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now Jesus offers this invitation in the context of controversy. Did you pick up on that as we were reading through those verses? All kinds of controversy going on. You know, we think that we live in a day when issues raise and people are arguing all over the place. That's exactly it to even a greater degree because there are deep religious issues at stake here. They're arguing with each other, and it's all about Jesus. It's all over his identity. Who is he? As verse 43 says in a very understated way, so there was a division among the people over him. That Feast of the Tabernacles was all about who is this man, Jesus. The people were confused because Jesus had just accused the Jewish leadership of trying to kill him. That's how bad the controversy had gone. But yet he's teaching openly in the temple and they're saying, why are they letting him teach? Why are they letting him speak? Why haven't they arrested him? Surely they haven't changed their mind about them, have they? You see... Jesus, in his powerful, unique teaching, with authority like no teacher had ever taught with before, and his miracles, which amazed the crowds, people in that setting are always saying, this must be the Messiah. Can't he be the Messiah? He must be the Messiah. But there was a problem. 
in the common belief that he had been born and raised in Nazareth of Galilee. That's what, across the board, everybody seemed to believe. It's interesting, there's even a division about what the Messiah's origins really would be. If you look at verse 27, it says, some people believe that the Messiah would appear out of nowhere, that no one would know where he came from, that he would be this mysterious, powerful figure that would suddenly appear in the temple and in Jerusalem to take the throne and to throw out the enemies and to establish the kingdom of God on earth. Kind of like they expected him to have this mysterious background, kind of like Melchizedek back in the book of Genesis, that nobody would know where he came from. That was a very popular belief in that day, and it's reflected there in verse 27. But then if you look down at verses 41 and 42, there was another large group of people there in Jerusalem who were much more biblical. They'd been better trained. They knew the scriptures. They knew the Old Testament prophecies. And they say there that the Messiah must be born from the line of the King of David and that he must be born in Bethlehem here in Judea. And so they get the gold star for knowing their theology and knowing their scriptures. They were right. But the problem is everyone thought that Jesus was born in Galilee in the the town of Nazareth. And so therefore, both groups, those who thought you wouldn't know where he was from, and the group that knew what the Old Testament prophecy said about him having to be born in Bethlehem, both of them thought that he was illegitimate. And therefore could not be qualified to be the Messiah. It's kind of, I was thinking about this, you know, it's kind of unlike dissimilar from the controversy over our president's birth certificate. <laughs> in, in, in this case, the vast majority feel it's legitimate, and you have this minority of people trying to prove that he doesn't have the qualifications based on his birthplace. But in this case, you've got the mass majority thinking he's illegitimate, and nobody seems to be trying to find out any evidence to find out where he was really born. It's interesting to me, and I don't honestly know what to make of it, that Jesus doesn't try to say, I was born in Bethlehem. I qualify. Now, they didn't have birth certificates back then. I don't know how they proved such a thing, but he didn't, there was no attempt. Jesus didn't even try to tell them that he was legitimately born in Bethlehem, as the other gospel writers tell us. And I can only speculate as to why he didn't. And I think it might go back to the fact that Jesus knew what a darkened, spiritually dead heart is like. And he knows that no matter how much evidence you provide to somebody who's blinded by sin, they are not going to accept it. They're not going to believe what's true. And so he wasn't going to get into some technical debate about his birthplace because that wasn't going to address the people he's dealing with. They weren't going to be able to hear it. So instead, Jesus, and it's interesting to me how he responds, and I think we can learn something from how he responds to the controversy. He says, come to me if you're thirsty and drink. He points to those deeper spiritual needs that every sinner has and says, you want to have those needs met? Stop debating about where, what city I was born in and deal with your real needs and you'll find that I can meet them. True satisfaction, and I know this is a little cute, so bear with me, but true satisfaction in life, I just, this jumped out at me as I was thinking about an outline for this text. True satisfaction in life comes from knowing who Jesus knows, going where Jesus goes, and doing as Jesus does. I think that's what, I looked at his statements. What he says in reply to all this 
controversy, and those three phrases jumped out at me. And look at how these statements of Jesus reflect that. First of all, true satisfaction in life, deep satisfaction for all your deepest needs comes from knowing who Jesus knows. Look at verse 28. He says, you know me and you know where I come from? He asks incredulously or ironically or skeptically, however you want to put it. He says, you don't have a clue about where I come from. He says, he who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. It's an amazing claim that Jesus makes here. I come from the father. The one true God of the universe, the Father God, I come from the Father, I know the Father, and I have come to reveal the Father to sinners. That's what he's claiming here. And if you want to know life, if you want to be satisfied, you need to know God, and I'm here to make that possible. That you might truly know the true God. Jesus said it over and over and over, didn't he? Especially here in the Gospel of John. Just skip over one chapter to verse chapter 8, verse, verse 19. He says, again, speaking to the same unbelieving crowds, he says, you need know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He's making the same claim. And it's a, it's a lesson that the disciples had to learn. We're not even sure at this point they had learned it fully yet. If you turn over to chapter 14, listen to what... The interaction that uh, Jesus has there with the disciples, beginning in chapter 14, beginning in verse 8. Philip said to him, said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want your deepest need in life to be met? You need to know God. You need to know God comprehensively, exhaustively, and I am here to show him to you. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You see, we all have a thirst for the transcendent. We all have a thirst for that which is is beautiful, that which is supernatural, that which is glorious. But because we're born sinners with a rebellious will towards our Creator, we refuse to praise and worship the one true God, but instead we praise and worship creatures or things or false gods. That's what the sin nature does to us. We seek out beautiful people to worship. We seek out gifted athletes to worship. We seek out talented musicians to worship. We seek out great, powerful leaders to worship. That's our fallen nature. And we refuse to worship the one true God. And Christ says, you want to know this God? Know me. I am here to reveal him to you. Reminds me of a, this is actually an introduction to a sermon that Charles Spurgeon preached back in the mid-1800s. Just let me read to you the first couple of paragraphs of that sermon. 
Spurgeon says, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with. In them we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth, that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise, but he is like a wild donkey's colt, and with solemn exclamation say, I am a butt of yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And whilst humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consolatory. For there is, in contemplating Christ, a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a release for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Spirit, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated." I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. It is to that subject that I invite you this morning. He preached that sermon, by the way, when he was 20 years old. Jesus says, you want that kind of satisfaction? You want to know God? Come to me and drink. Are you thirsty for that? Come to me and drink. Secondly, Jesus tells the crowds that true satisfaction comes from going where Jesus goes. Going where Jesus goes. Look at verse 32. The chief priests and the Pharisees, they're provoked again. They understand that Jesus is making audacious claims here. And so they send out the temple policemen to... Arrest Jesus. Send him out with a warrant for his arrest, basically. And when Jesus hears of it, knows of it, he says, verse 32, we're actually moving on um, later, a couple verses later, he says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Where I am going, basically, he's saying, you cannot come. I'm only going to be with you a little bit longer. Six months, we know, to be exact, till the next feast, which is the feast of the Passover. And then he's going to a place where no one could find him, and these unbelieving crowds could not come to him. Now, it's understandable, as you see as the text goes on, that they say among themselves, 
you know, is he going to try to run away? Is he going to try to escape, get out of town before they arrest him and do whatever they're going to do to him? They speculate that maybe he has ideas of going out to the dispersion, which is what they called the Jews that had left Judea and had been spread out throughout the Roman Empire. Is he going to go up out among the scattered Jews and try to build a movement out there and come back? What's his, what's his strategy? What's his plan? It's interesting that it's kind of like an unintentional prophecy when they say that, that that might be his ultimate goal. Kind of like Caiaphas when he said that it's better that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. Here you have the people saying, is it Jesus' plan to go out to the scattered Jews and out to the Greeks to bring his message out there? Because that's what eventually would happen, but not before his death, resurrection, and ascension. Jesus says, I have come from God the Father in heaven. And I am soon returning there. And if you will not come to me now, today is the day of salvation. If you will not come to me now, then you cannot come where I am going. Those are, if you really understand what Jesus is saying, those are solemn, severe words. But to those who will come to him in faith, look at the flip side of it. To those who will come to him in faith, he promises to bring us with him where he is. That's the promise behind the threat. If you will come to him with your thirst and drink from his living water, you will go where he goes. Listen to this interaction just a little bit later in John chapter 13, verse 36, interaction between Peter and Jesus. It says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. And then over, just one chapter over in chapter 14, these are very familiar and precious promises to God's people. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where, where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. So not only does Jesus offer to those that are spiritually thirsty the opportunity to know God, but to go to be with God because that's where Jesus is. To go where he goes. Over in chapter 16, just a couple more chapters over, verse 16, he says to his disciples, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. Skipping down to verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, speaking of his crucifixion. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So you, so also you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. If you have come to Christ in faith with your thirst, those deep spiritual thirsts, then the promise he is giving is that he will give you a foretaste of heaven here and now and the fullness of heaven. Literally, in all that that means in the future. It's a sure possession because of his work on the cross. He is the only one that can get you there. Let me turn to another great mind of the Christian church, this time to 
C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity, a shorter quote this time. C.S. Lewis says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I can find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. I must keep my alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. And this brings us to the other source of lasting satisfaction that Jesus alludes to in this text. True satisfaction comes from knowing who Jesus knows. It comes from going where Jesus goes. But finally, true satisfaction comes from doing what Jesus does. Look at verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's an amazing promise. Very similar to what Jesus said back in chapter 4 to the Samaritan woman at the well of Jacob. Remember, he said in verse 14, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will be in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And there he alludes to the fact that when he meets those deepest spiritual needs we have for significance and relationship and for God himself, when he meets those needs within us, that life, that's what real life is, that's what abundant life is, that life begins to bubble up within us and we become a source of that life. And Jesus adds here in chapter 7 that that bubbling up, that spring like a natural spring of water within us flows out from us and it becomes a river. River of living water that flows out from us because he's put it within us to begin with. It's a beautiful picture of what the Christian life is about. Do you remember at the end of Ezekiel? It's not one of the more popular sections of scripture to spend a lot of time in. But at the end of the book of Ezekiel, he has this vision. God gives him a vision of this really strange, wonderful, otherworldly temple. And the Lord tells him that the Lord is going to build this temple in the future. This temple is going to come. And in describing that temple, it says that out from under the threshold of the temple, water comes. And that water becomes a shallow river that becomes deeper and deeper and deeper the farther it goes away from the temple. And that water on both sides of the water, as the water of that river spreads throughout the countryside... On the edges of the, of the river, trees, a lot of trees begin to grow. And those trees grow healthy and strong and they bear a lot of fruit. And then as that water gets deeper and deeper and deeper to the point where you can't even cross it, it goes out to the ocean. And when the waters, the fresh waters of that river reach the ocean, it transforms the salt water of the ocean so that the salt water becomes fresh water. That's what Jesus is talking about here in chapter 7. He says, come to me if you're thirsty. 
And I will give you living water. And that living water will well up like a spring within you. And it will flow out of you into this great river that will transform the world. That's what he's promising. It's a picture of the church. And the ministry of the church. We come to Christ to drink deeply. To have our deepest, most profound spiritual needs met. And we worship him and then we go forth into the world and the rivers of living water flow out of us to transform the world around us. In verse 39, it says that John gives the explanation to make sure that we don't miss it. Now, this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. You see, the living water was poured, the water from the pool of Siloam was poured on the altar because unless atonement for sin was made, the water could not be poured out. Unless Christ died on the cross for our sins and our sins were fully punished there so that we might be forgiven and seen as righteous in his sight because we've been given the gift of Christ's righteousness, we could never receive this living water. But having been forgiven, having been redeemed, having been reconciled to our God, now we receive this water And it comes through the work of the Holy Spirit within us. Now, John here and Jesus is not saying that believers in the Old Testament didn't have the Holy Spirit. They certainly did or else they would have never believed. But what he's promising is a greater, more profound, more powerful indwelling of the Spirit that would come upon the church so that the the vision of Ezekiel's temple would come to pass and this mighty river would flow out from the temple to transform the world. In, verse six, in chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus says, It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's to your advantage. It's to your empowerment that I go away so that the Spirit will come and produce this river of living water within you that will change the world. Over in Acts chapter 1, Verse 8, listen to what Jesus said to the fledgling church after his resurrection. As he was about to be ascended to the presence of the Father, to the right hand of the throne in heaven, he says to the church, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There's that river getting deeper and deeper and broader and more powerful as it flows out from the church to the ends of the earth. And then Peter, on the day of Pentecost, confirms that it has begun, it's happened. The Spirit has descended upon the church. He says, beginning in verse 33 of chapter 2, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. It's happening. It's been happening for 2,000 years. The river is flowing. It flows from the church. There is a river of deeply satisfying water of life that is bubbling up in the church of Jesus Christ and it is flowing out deeper and deeper into the world, bringing life wherever it goes. And there is no greater joy and satisfaction in this world than doing what Jesus does, which is bringing the water of life so that thirsty sinners might drink and have their deepest needs satisfied. Do you know that satisfaction this morning? Do you live day in and day out with that satisfaction deep in your heart? I know a lot of church people. 
that seem to walk around in a continual state of discontentment. And that's not to say that we don't have real, physical, relational, material needs in this world. We do. But if you have come to Christ in faith and drunk from the water of life that he offers, then your life should reflect satisfaction at a deep, consistent, persistent level. Because your deepest needs, the eternal needs of your life, are met. And even as believers sometimes, and especially unbelievers, we go to the things of this world to satisfy that discontentment and that dissatisfaction that only Christ can satisfy. We go to sex. We go to drugs. We go to alcohol. We go to television. We go to sporting events. We go to friends and family members. We go to our jobs. We go to our possessions. We go to all these things to find that deep satisfaction that only Christ can give. In Christ, we know God. In Christ, we possess heaven, both now and in its fullness later. And in Christ, we are able to have the immensely satisfying work, labor, joyful labor of bringing that water of life to those other sinners who are thirsty. The great hymn says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. If anyone thirsts, let him come to Christ and drink. Let's pray. Father, we have come here this morning as thirsty people. And we have drunk the water of life. We have received life from Christ through his word and through his spirit. Now make us like rivers of the water of life that you might transform the world through us and through your spirit as you send us back into the world to love and to speak the truth in love. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.